If you have a Bible with you, open with me to Ephesians chapter 2. It's in the New Testament. Um, it's in uh, Paul's prison epistles. Uh, and, and Ephesians is a letter written to a church in a place called Ephesus. And my hope this morning for you, whether you are new to the faith or checking out the faith or have been walking with Jesus for a long time, is my hope and my aim is as we study scripture together that our hearts would be provoked towards gratitude of God's unfailing, unquenchable, unwavering love for his people, which he displayed through the life and death and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. And if you're here and you do not yet know Jesus, I want you to know I understand where you are. And as I'll share later today, I didn't come to faith until I was 17 years old, and I know what it's like to be far from God. And so I'm not here to judge you. I'm here, Lord willing, to help you and want to encourage you along the way. A lot of times we in our churches like to talk about God's grace, God's unmerited favor, a free gift that God gives to us through his son Jesus. And I don't know about you, but I can have the tendency to cheapen grace if I don't see the full picture of what grace accomplishes. And so for me, I feel compelled to remind us, for those who are followers of Jesus, of the great gravity and eternal consequence of what sin is and what sin does. And as Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, writing to believers in the church, reminding them of who they once were. He's also identifying with those who may be in the church, but don't know Jesus Christ, where they currently sit. In Ephesians 2, starting in verse 1, and you were dead. Say with me, dead. Dead. Say with me again, dead. Dead. I went to seminary, and so I went back to the Greek and looked at that. The word is nekros, and guess what? It means dead. You're welcome. Hundred and something hours, 98 hours, whatever, seminary, dead means dead. You were dead. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, what is sin? Sin literally means to miss the mark, but in the context of the scriptures, in the context of a holy and perfect and righteous God, sin means to not live up to the created glory of which we were made into to reflect the glory of God. And so it's thoughts, attitudes, behaviors, inactions. That is sin, that don't live up to the glory and standard of God. Now, if you talk to many Americans and say, hey, you are a sinner, most of them say, I'm not that bad. I was sitting on an airplane recently talking to a guy, and, and typically if I'm tired on a flight and someone's asking me what I do for a living, I try to avoid it. Because everybody wants, to, everybody wants to be like, oh, so you're a pastor, guess what? You know Joel Osteen. Okay, come on. There's 7 million people in Houston. We're not BFFs. I don't know the guy. But we're talking, and I was like, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a spiritual tour guide. And I was like, no, I'm kidding. I, I'm a pastor. And the guy's like, oh, okay, so you preach about Jesus. I said, I, said, I do. And he said, well, I'm a good person. And I was in a mood. I'll just be honest. And I said, how good do you have to be, do you think? I think he ordered a Jack and Coke or something, but he had little bottles working into a cup, and he was quiet and thinking for a long time. And he says, I guess that's a really good question. And I said, well, that's what I'm paid for. I said, how good do you have to be? Because the Bible says, for all of us sin and fall short of the glory of God. And so you have to match the perfection of God in order to be not needing of grace. And I said, are you perfect? He said, no. I said, you need grace. We need grace. It's not about being good, it's about worshiping the one who is completely 
eternally, infinitely good. And as Paul writes, he says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And to the believer, he writes, in which you once walked. Now, I want to understand you. We like to say in our culture, it's all about me, right? Me, 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 me. It's the me song. We love the mirror. Our favorite God is found in the mirror. Right? And we care what other people think and how they worship us and how they reflect glory back onto us. And so it's all about me. The problem is the word you is more like, as we say in Texas, y'all. So, so the message of the, of the Bible isn't just to you, 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 you. There's a part of that. But more importantly, the message of the Bible is to y'all. I'm a part of y'all, you're a part of y'all, but y'all. And y'all were dead in your trespasses and sins. Now, some Christians who've been believers for a while congratulate themselves for their 30-minute quiet times and their hour prayer and their 10% tithe and everything else will say, yeah, they are dead in their sins. Oh, the people that live over there are dead in their sins. Or the people over there. And we might say, like, sure, you know, I was a sinner. It's a setup. You know me. It's like, it's like you're lobbing pitching to me, man. I'm, I'm ready. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. Y'all, y'all were dead in your trespasses and sins. We forget that. We forget who we, are, who we were and how we were apart from the presence and grace of God. And so when that happens, when we begin neglecting and ignoring that, we then have lower sense of gratitude towards the grace of God. And quite honestly, I think we become entitled to it in our attitudes, that we feel like that, yeah, he's lucky to have me. So we're like, <laughs> no, I do that, right? Well, I'm, I'm really gifted. The kingdom is lucky. He better be glad I'm not Muslim. No, we won't say that. We know better. If we don't understand the gravity and weight of sin, we don't understand the breadth and the width and the power of God's grace. But this death has consequences that are lingering in, a, in an effect. It says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Well, what does that mean? Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Human beings were created to worship. You're either going to worship God or you're going to worship the enemy, Satan. And guess what? The enemy is a deceiver. He doesn't care if you know you're worshiping him or not. As long as you're not worshiping the Lord and enjoying God and growing in the Lord and trusting in Jesus, the enemy's winning. And so when, if you're here and you're not yet a follower of Jesus and you say, but yeah, man, pastor, I'm spiritual. Every spirituality has to have an object at the center. And if Christ is not the center, then you are. Because every other religion... Every other religion ultimately is up to you to perform. There's one world religion that does not require your performance, and that is Christianity, because it banks on, it goes all in on the performance of Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection, and his impending return. So when you're dead in your trespasses and sins, you do what feels right to you. You become the sovereign. You become the judge. You become the one who determines how you live your life and what you do with your life. 
Whatever feels good, you do it. I love that mindset. Pastor Justin uh, is way smarter than I am. So I'm pretty simple. And, and we were talking about absolute truth and all that. I remember years ago talking about it. But I remember thinking, like, when someone says there's no such thing as absolute truth, there's absolutely no absolute truth, there's a word that pops up called it's a fallacy. If it's absolutely no absolute truth, you're absolutely saying there's an absolute truth. Again, I'm not the sharpest tag, but as I think through that, I'm like, that does not make sense. So when we're dead in our sin, we do what feels right. We, it's up to us to determine. The lens by which we live our life and interact with people is based upon our belief of ourselves. What we determine is true, right, and good instead of focusing on what does God desire and what does God want. We, we don't live through the lens of Scripture and the power of the gospel. We live through the power of the meology, studying ourselves. The consequence of sin is death, and we were all at one point separated from God, deserving of wrath, and as it says here, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. When we look out at the world around us that is suffering and falling apart, we shouldn't look down our nose at them as people that are lesser or dumber. They are people in need of a savior. And when we reorient our minds that way, a lot of the isms start falling away. Sexisms and racisms, everything else. When we begin through the gospel lens, it begins to fall apart. But in our sin and the death that... in is falling from it, we will think deadly thoughts and place ourselves at the center. We were dead in our sins, trespasses and sins. I didn't grow up going to church. Um, I grew up in a home. My father was Jewish. I'm part Jewish. Shalom. And uh, my mom came to faith when she was 19, married a Jewish guy, and they were good people. And when I was in first grade, we went, went and visited a church. Now, they were like, hey, we're getting up early on Sunday. We're going to Sunday school. When I was six years old, I hated school. I was a big white kid that cried all the time. I, 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 I didn't like school. When I was 22, I was tested, and it turns out I have ADHD and dyslexia. And so that's one of the reasons I didn't like school. But my ADHD wasn't outwardly displayed, so I wasn't, like, going all over the place. I was just one of those guys that could sit there and look like I'm paying attention, but I'm not there. And so school was just so stressful, and then my parents were like, we're going to Sunday school. And I'm like, why? More school? My father wanted to go because he's curious about what they did. Went to a large church in Houston, Houston's First Baptist Church. And my first day in church, we went, up to, um, we went up to the sixth floor of their building. It was like a huge church. And these people, they're very nice. And they had donuts, so it was like a good bait and switch. And they gave me a Bible, and it was written by a guy named James. King James. To a six-year-old who's dyslexic. And the Bible was like, what are these words? The... Everything out of TH, liveth, dieth, runneth, jumpeth. I couldn't read that thing. And so I started looking for pictures. And I get towards the back. And I find a white hippie looking guy holding a lamb, giving a peace sign. And it says, Jesus Christ the Lord, the Lamb of God. Hey, guys, want to touch my lamb? I later found out that Jesus wasn't white at all. And I got to be careful saying that, Brenham, because some people are like, Shh. Boy, my Jesus is. <laughs> I was preaching at an outreach one time, multiracial outreach, and this kid goes, he was black. And I was like, no, no, I'll meet you halfway. 
that was my first concept of Jesus. And so when you hear people saying, fear Jesus, fear the Lord, I'm like, that guy? Really? He's holding a lamb. It's like a petting zoo host. I don't know. So I didn't get it. I didn't understand the gospel. My dad, though, heard a Jewish man speak that day. The missional friends we had were being wise. And my dad left that day and told my mom, I think that's what's been missing my whole life. And so we started having to go to Sunday school every week. And we started going to a church closer to our house. And the preacher was loud and Baptisty, And he preached forever. It's like the teacher from the Peanuts. But mad. Mama, 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 mama. Then we were done. They took our money and gave us snacks. A little wafer, a shot of grape juice, and then we were done. That was Christianity. And, and all we started saying at home was, you've got to be more Christian-like. You've got to be more Christian-like, which basically came down to you've got to act better on the outside. As your thoughts on the inside are, you can think and be however you want and believe whatever you want, but you better change your behavior. Your behavior must change. And that was religion. And so living out my death and my sin, I, I never was at a place where I would really say I would trust God. Now, if you ask me, I would say I'm a Christian, right? But if I went to McDonald's on a weekly basis, I'll never become a Big Mac. Going to church doesn't make you a Christian anymore that going to McDonald's makes you a Big Mac. I just, I didn't know the Lord. So I got into junior high, I started going with girls. If you think about that, where are you going to go? Right, your mom has to take you. That's really awesome. And so we talked on the phone all the time, and I got dumped a few times, and I swore off women, and then I, I met Irene, and she was Puerto Rican, you cannot handle my heat, she was awesome, and I was like, I was like, she's the one, for a week and six days. <laughs> and then she called me and said, hey, Casey, I'm sorry, but my mom says we need to break up. I got dumped by her mother. My fragile little being just couldn't handle it. Seventh grade, well, in seventh grade, so I was living in a place called A-Leaf, which is in southwest Houston. It's called a SWAT, southwest A-Leaf, Texas. It's one of those places you try not to drive through because you might get killed. And I lived there. No big deal. I had friends that were black, Colombian, Cuban, don't confuse them, they get mad. Chinese, Japanese, Vietnamese, Filipino. I had friends of all different nationalities. And my parents decided to move from A-Leaf, what's up, to Sugar Land. It was a culture shock. So I stayed in school in eighth grade out there, and then in ninth grade I went to Clements High School in Fort Bend County, Sugarland. Now I was real into hip hop and rap. I was wearing my baggy draws and my jersey, had my tight fade, and I didn't want to play football. I wanted to play baseball, but the coach said if I wanted to play football or baseball, I had to play football. So I played football for like four days, but it hurt, so I quit. Now before you judge, these corn-fed white boys who had been taking creatine since they were seven were six foot two and 250 pounds. I was five foot seven with a size 14 shoe. You turn me sideways, I was an L. I would run into these guys, I'd get all jacked up, I'd get up, they'd spank me and tell me to go do it again, and they're like, hey, let's go shower. Weird. I didn't really get sports. Tried out for baseball, I got cut from baseball, so I ended up doing theater in high school. Um, I struggled with anxiety and depression on and off my whole life from the time I was a child, and uh, freshman year was really struggling, and um, I stayed the night at a friend's house one night, and they were some of my football player friends, and they, they gave me some alcohol that their parents had. I remember drinking it. I remember how I liked, I liked how it made me feel. Went back the next month, and we did that again, but we had harder liquor, and my buddy drank a lot and got very sick, and so after that, I was like, I'm never, ever, ever drinking again until a few months later. And I started partying. One of the ways I dealt with my anxiety and depression and my learning disabilities that were not diagnosed, the way my sin manifested it was self-medication, self-preservation, 
self-proclamation. It was all about me. But the wages of sin is death. And this death was oozing out. The gospel, the good news I would preach is you will find hope in life through partying, through approval of your friends, through girlfriends, through stuff, through wealth, through posture and position. That was the gospel my life was preaching. That was what I believed was good news. And if you couldn't have those things, and if you couldn't embrace those things, and those things weren't giving you what you needed, you would be destroyed and depressed and broken. For the wages of sin is death. And we were all dead in our sin, separated from God. And as it says, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. I'm a long-term kind of guy. I was in a long-term relationship with a girl starting sophomore year. We were together a year and eight months. Um, we fought a lot. I partied a lot. I struggled with school a lot. Junior year of high school, after I finished my junior year, I went to work as a lifeguard. If you think about that, not the best job for a kid with ADHD. Hey, Casey, watch the pool. My bad, man. But that cloud looks like a smurf. Look at it, you know. So struggle. July 4th, 1995, my parents said I could have a few friends over uh, for a barbecue. And those of you who've been through high school know how that works. A few friends invite a few friends. So three or four turned to about 20 that night. My girlfriend and I, over a year and eight months, had recently broken up. I was struggling with depression. I was really struggling with loneliness. And that's one of the big things that would be evidential later to me looking back on my spiritual death was there was oftentimes, even around people, I always felt alone and isolated. And so that night we were drinking beer, playing volleyball. My parents, um, by that point, had gone to bed. And an old friend came over and she and I started talking and she started telling me things that she was doing in her life and getting involved in. And it wasn't her fault, it was just one of those things where I had been carrying a lot. I was trying to figure out who I was, where I was. My sin was overwhelming and my joy was gone. There was none. And so I got very upset and I ran to my car, which is a 1995 Z28 Camaro. I got in my car, began pulling away. As I was pulling away, a friend came and sat in front of my car because someone had heard me say, I'm going to kill myself, or at least that's what they thought they heard. And so they stopped me and they started banging on the window, screaming, Casey, get out of your car, get out of your car. It was about 1.30 in the morning. And so my friends thought they had it under, under control. So they took one car and put it in front of me like this, took another car and put it behind me like this and blocked me in. And so someone said, well, hey, let's just leave him alone. Let him calm down. He'll get out when he's ready. And so they left me there. Now, mind you, I had the radio on loud and I remember sitting there just sobbing and I look up and I realize nobody is there. And so I turned my car back on instead of um, backing up or going into the garage or the driveway, I hopped a curb and I left. I got to the exit of my neighborhood and I was about to turn left and all of a sudden I just broke down sobbing. I remember this very distinctly, even though it's been over 20 years, calling out to a God I didn't know yet, asking him why. Why did life hurt? Why was I always alone? Why did nothing I ever seemed to do work? For we were dead in our trespasses and sins. The whiff of spiritual death was very prevalent in my life, and I thought maybe this would be it and the hardest thing until I hit the gas and moved forward. I started going on this main road back to another entrance of my neighborhood at 1.45 in the morning. I was going apparently around 80 miles an hour, and as I went around this curve, I see my friend John in the street with his arms up like this. I jerk the wheel and he jumps the same direction. His body rolls up the hood of my car, smashes through my windshield. He comes through so hard that it bends my steering wheel and my airbags deploy. I'm knocked out, my car loses control. I knock over some trees and I land in the trees. 
I wake up and my friend is coming through the passenger door. You see, this happened on the other side of a four-foot fence that separated my parents' cul-de-sac from the street. And so my friend was coming in here to rescue me and pull me out because the car was smoking. They didn't know if it was on fire. It was severely damaged. And he pulled me out and laid me in the grass and kept saying, who did I hit? Who did I hit? He said, Casey, calm down. You didn't hit anybody. You just hit some trees. I said, please, just go check. And he laid me in the grass away from the car. I could see him run, stop, and turn back and take off sprinting towards the house. A few moments later, my father hops the fence. He whispers in my ear, don't say anything. And I says, my friend okay? He says, I don't know about that. The firemen came, policemen came, paramedics came. And I remember a fireman was working on me. I said, sir, is my friend okay? And he said, son, we're not worrying about him right now. We're worrying about you. I said, please just tell me. He said, we're not worrying about him right now. We're going to worry about you. They put me in the ambulance. They took me to the hospital. As I was laying in the emergency room, they were running all these tests. And a few hours later, a state trooper walked in. And he said, son, I need to take your blood. There's been a fatality. A young man's been killed. I killed my friend. His name was John Cantantis. He was 17 years old. He served as a lifeguard. We were friends. And my car hit him so hard that it severed his aorta in his heart and it killed him immediately. At that moment, I broke. And I remember praying to God again, who I didn't yet know, saying, God, take me instead of him. And the sense of justice raised up. If my friend is dead, then I should be dead too. And I wanted to kill myself. My parents, knowing my history psychologically and knowing that I was at my capacity, decided with the doctors to put me in a mental hospital instead of taking me home immediately when I got out of the hospital. And during my stay in the hospital, my friend's parents came to see me, and I'd only met them once before. I remember sitting down in this conference room with a social worker and my friend's parents, and they came to say, Casey, we want you to know that we are Christians and that we forgive you. We don't want you to hurt yourself, and we know John wouldn't want you to hurt yourself either. And we talked for about an hour, and they asked me about my religion, and I told him, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. I've been to church, but I was spiritually dead. And I wish I could tell you right in that moment, I prayed the prayer and the lights came on and everything else, but it wasn't that way. My mom bought me a Bible and I started reading the New Testament, hanging out with Jesus. And the first thing that became apparent to me is that there is a true God who created all things and that he is a perfect and holy God separate and that I could never on my own live up to his standard. Now, I wanted to justify, and I went through a phase. I'll be honest with you. I wish it would say that easy. I bought into the idea of sin. Even after accidentally killing my friend, I was still thinking, but I'm not that bad. I made bad choices, but I'm not that bad. Trying to justify my sin in context to the rest of the world, as opposed to compare my sin to the holiness of God. But as the lens zoomed in, I began to realize there is a God, and I'm at odds with him. For the wages of sin is death. And we were dead in our trespasses and sins. I love the beginning of verse 3. That it's a right reorientation for all. Among whom we all once lived. And the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And were by nature born into. Living out of this nature. Children of wrath. Enemies of God, at odds with God. We can stop here in verse 3, but that's bad news. For those of us that can find ourselves through the grace of God in these among whom we once, and those who 
can live amongst the y'all were, then verse 4 is a celebration. For those of you who maybe today God is opening your eyes to the reality that you on your own are at odds with God because of your disobedience to God, then my prayer is that verse 4 would be the healing balm that comes and brings newness and regeneration and hope and power by a spirit in your soul. Either way, I've been praying that God would bring revival in your hearts, either for the first time or again. Verse 4, so we're separated from God, deserving of his wrath, we amongst, amongst whom we all once lived. Some of us are there today, but God, verse 4. But God. See the shift in focus from the mirror, from inside, from our abilities, from our performance, taking that away from us, but God. Shift your eyes. But God. Let, let's look at the hope. Let's look at the treasure. Let's look at the remedy. Let's look at the hope. But God, and let's learn about God, being rich in mercy. Y'all understand rich. We're in America. You're either rich and you want more rich, or you hope to get there someday. Abundance, a lot. He's not skimpy in mercy. He's abundant in mercy. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. That's what mercy is. We don't get what we deserve. We deserve death. We deserve wrath in an ongoing eternal manner. But God, being rich in mercy, what's his motive? Because of the great love by which he loved us. Now, I'm going to take a slight rabbit trail, but don't worry, Pastor Justin, I won't go too far out. There's this horrible message out there that says you have to go get right with God before you come to God. Go make yourself right, then come to God. That's not the gospel message. If you're waiting to like pull it together and get over your addiction or your problems or whatever, and then you're going to clean up and come to the Lord, stop it. What's his motive? His motive is because of the great love with which he loved us. Look what it says next. I hope you're following with me. If it's your Bible or the churches, and you don't have a Bible, take the church's Bible. They have some back there. But underline this. Look what it says. The great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. Even when we were dead. Not when you woke yourself up enough to hear the gospel and grab onto the life preserver, you're dead at the bottom of the ocean and God in his kindness reaches down, pulls you up, says you are mine, breathes life into you and makes you brand new. Even when you were dead in your trespasses, when you're useless and helpless and hopeless, you had nothing to bring to the table. That's the love of God. That is the richness of his mercy. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. By a free gift, you have been saved. That grace. Now, we could stop there and say, awesome, I'm saved from hell. Whew. I know where my future is eternally. But wait, there's more. And it's not even an infomercial. Maybe I have to make it up or give you an upsell. There's more to the gospel, the more to the, the hope, the more to the restoration. But God, because of who he is, because of the way he loves, even when we're dead and useless and helpless and hopeless, made us alive together with Christ. 
By grace, you have been saved. Gratitude, worship, a free gift you can't earn. But then there's more. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So we get access, we get acceptance, we get power. So he saves us from sin to relationship with himself. He grants us then access like sons and daughters to be seated with him at his table in community, in communion. And then he entrusts to us his power. But Christian, let me ask you, are you walking in that power? Are you living as one that is welcome any time to the king's table? Is as you grow in how you treasure him, freeing you from the lower level joys of this life. Why? It's not just about you. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. He might show in the coming ages, he might illustrate, he might display you as an illustration, you as a demonstration of his life and of his power. Your story is his story. Your story is a living and breathing example of God's profound, irrevocable, ongoing, great, grateful gift through his son Jesus. When I was 17 years old, as I was reading the New Testament's struggling through faith, I began to realize that there's a God I'm at odds with, and I started hanging out with Jesus. And Jesus didn't go to the ones that had it all together and had it all figured out. He went to the ones who were broken and needy and desperate and exposed. At the age of 17, Jesus saved me. Now, mind you, I was in a Methodist church, so I got saved a bunch for a while. If you don't know that joke, it's pretty funny. If you don't, don't worry about it. I prayed the prayer, hung out with my Baptist friends and prayed the prayer and I want to be right with God. And then I messed up, I thought I lost it and all that. And I came, I read the Bible more and I realized, no, when God saves you, God keeps you and God sustains you. Why? As an illustration of his profound grace. Even in the horror of our stories, even in the embarrassment of our failures, he uses those things to say, yeah, there's no way this guy on his own could have made anything of himself, but look what I've done. Look what I've done. Your life is an illustration. So let me ask you, church, what is your life preaching? What gospel does your life proclaim? Is it a proclamation of God's overwhelming, abundant love and grace towards us? Or are you preaching a gospel of rules and laws? Are you preaching a gospel of you can and can't? Or are you living a life of because of God, I want what's better? Because of God's abundant richness and mercy and grace towards us. Him proactively giving us the gift of grace and faith. The ability to trust and hope in him to sustain us even when we cannot. Verse 8 through 10, I'm going to lay in the plane. Just give you a heads up. The reason I stand here isn't because I just have a uh, provoking story. And I don't want those of you who've grown up in the church and haven't really rebelled to be like, well, I don't have a testimony like that. A testimony of obedience and faith is a greater testimony than all of us who have shipwrecked our lives. But we're not playing a comparison game, okay? 
But, but the miracle happens when you actually follow Jesus from a young age pretty faithfully. You're aware of your sin and you repent of it and you continue to grow and be transformed by it. That's more otherworldly than my story. Now, there's plenty of you here, church, who have profoundly messed up in your past. And I pray that my life would be an example of how profoundly God can change you and transform you. Because the gospel of grace is a gospel that changes people from the inside out. Verse 8, for by grace, by grace, this free gift of God, this will of God, this purpose of God, this mission of God, this grace you have been saved, this vehicle is faith. What is faith but the confident assurance of what we hope for is going to happen, the evidence of things not yet seen. That's Hebrews 11.1. 1. You've been saved by grace through faith, by trusting, by going all in, by putting your hope alone in this and this is not of your doing. Church person who's struggling to maintain your righteousness with God, stop. It's not of your own doing. It's a free gift of God. That's what it says here. It's a free gift of God. And, and why? So that no one may boast. The only thing I have to boast in is Christ. It's all we have. I can tell you about my speaking ministry and ministry and church planning, but all I have to give to you and to my church and my family is Christ. His life, his faithful death, his resurrection, and the hope of his return. That's all I've got to give, and that's all you have to give at the end of the day. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Verse 10, you can't stop at verse 9. If you stop at verse 9, you're not going to fully understand that reorientation of who you are in Christ. Because it starts talking about God's valuation of his people and how he provides you value. He doesn't save you because you're valuable. He gives you value because he saves you. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship. Another translation says masterpiece. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works. It doesn't say good works were created for you to become his workmanship. It says because you are his workmanship, because you are forgiven, because you are loved infinitely, you are then able to walk into and lean into the redeemed nature of how you're wired to live a reflective life of God's glory forever and ever. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. That's an ownership thing, by the way. Because God creates you, God owns you, and he can do what he pleases with you. When you start with that biblical understanding and framework, you can enjoy Romans 9 a little bit better. Your belief does not create God. God creates you and grants you belief. When we re reorient around that and begin to understand that he would have been right and just to leave us in our sin, but instead through Christ he makes us his own. You are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Have you seen where God is leading you and are you obeying and walking in those good works? Now, I, I know my friends here, I see one right now, it's a deep thinker, and I don't want you to get stuck. I want you to understand here. Here's the, here's the good works, to love God with all you are, to love your neighbor as you love yourself, and to make disciples as you go. Let's start there. If you're crushing that, then you can get more creative. Love God with all you are, love your neighbor as you love yourself, and make disciples as you go. 
we start living out that and start saying, this is my aim, this is my goal, that's the good works that God said beforehand, that I would walk in them, you start experiencing power and joy and consequence and eternity. Jesus saved me. My senior year of high school, I went to court that summer. I pled no contest to fourth degree state jail felony of negligent homicide. Was given five years of community service, had a breathalyzer in my car. Part of the reason I didn't go to jail was because somehow my blood alcohol level came back be below the legal level of intoxication. And my friend's parents said we'd rather him be on probation and have a chance to change the world than to go to prison. If those things didn't happen, I would have gone to jail. And so you, you have to steward that. And so I started speaking as a part of my probation. I was a theater kid, a new Christian, and I started talking to students. And that's how I got started. So when people ask me, hey, how did you get started speaking? I say probation for a felony. I don't advocate that. I met my wife my senior year of high school. She was a sophomore. Her parents had permission for that. Uh, we got married a few years after that. We've been married now over 17 years. Um, and and uh, I'm not telling you that to boast of myself. If you see her and see me, you'd be, you, you would be like, there is a God. <laughs> there, there is an apologetic of grace in his life. And so my encouragement for you here today is to quit toiling and to try to keep rightness with God, but rather enjoy the rightness that God has given you. And if you're here this morning and you're relating to what I'm saying and you identify with that absence of God and the absence of power and the death and isolation, I want to invite you home. Because Jesus isn't just looking to forgive you, he's looking to accept you. He's not asking you to accept him, he's acceptable. He's asking you to trust him and come home. What that looks like is just admitting to God that you have sinned against him, that you deserve his punishment, but that you trust in Jesus and that you put your hope in Jesus. And you ask Jesus to forgive you and to accept you, and he will. If you're a follower of Jesus and you've been living this cheap grace, believing somehow that Christ is your training wheels and you're now able to ride on your own, go back to the small bike, friends. Live in grace and enjoy Christ.